Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys This is your newest state representative, John Lujan of District 118 in San Antonio. I've only been in the job a couple of days, and already I get to introduce this week's TripCast. Who says public service isn't glamorous? And now, here's your host, Ross Ramsey. Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here with the TribCast for the second week of February. I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief and CEO Evan Smith. Hey there. Reporter Jay Root. Hello. And reporter Terry Langford. Hi. Let's start with New Hampshire. That's uh, last night. Um, any surprises? Well, the polls were right as opposed to as wrong as they've been for the last six months. So maybe the surprises the, the polls were the surprise right. The surprise is things were not wrong. Um, uh, Trump did better even in the, than the poll suggested. Um, and I think Bernie Sanders may have gotten the most or the second most votes in a Democratic, a contested Democratic primary uh, ever. Well, he should enjoy it because I think this is probably about the last. Uh, I think it's going to be a declining resource from here on out. Right. Did, did, that did moment Philippe just, Reigns and uh, yeah. Zach Petkanis and the Hillary people get to you? Is that why you're saying No, it? no. I mean, I just think that um, once you get into uh, larger states with, yes. you know, I mean. and, and, and minority population. Listen, I think that we've been underestimating Trump this entire election, and we've been overestimating Bernie. That's my well, take on this. Well, agreed. I, I'm going to take the minority position on this and say that I actually think that the Sanders phenomenon is a legitimate thing. It is not just college students and old hippies in early white states, but I actually think there's something substantive to what he's doing, whether or not he ultimately wins. And he turns out to have been, in both parties, I think, the best candidate with the most disciplined message. He's an anti-candidate in a lot of respects, as Trump is in a different way the anti-candidate. Yeah, but the, a lot of these guys were not Democrats that were voting for him last night. And... Um, you know, you get into South Carolina. You, you know, the thing about Trump is that the, if Mitt Romney had had Donald Trump's polls, we, we, there never would have been all the coverage to the other candidates. And Mitt Romney couldn't have called anybody a pussy and gotten away with it. Well, okay, and he couldn't but, have called Megyn Kelly a bimbo, and he couldn't have called John McCain a loser. But here's the thing: you're about, making my point. Here's for the thing me. about here's the thing about the Democrats. I'm talking about the Democrats rather than the Republicans. There are two things at play here. One is Hill, uh, 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 Bernie has been inflated to some degree, maybe by these early state wins and the particular circumstances around these early state wins, and maybe we shouldn't assume that this will continue. Here's the other thing. Hillary Clinton is a bad candidate. Hillary Clinton, this has been a suspicions confirmed moment from the 2008 campaign. Yes. We may have all assumed that the reason that she lost in 08 is because the president, back then the senator, mm -hmm. Obama, was some cross between Jesus and Taylor Swift and, you know, Cam Newton. And the, and the fact is that We're he was, your email he was all that. <laughs> he was all that. But she was also a bad candidate. And this time, she is still a bad candidate. It's suspicions this confirmed. Ain't, it ain't 2008, though, anymore. And being anti-establishment in the is, Republican Sanders is not field. O, Sanders is not Obama, and I'm not suggesting that. Like, I still say that there's a, a, a much better chance that uh, Clinton is the nominee uh, rather than Sanders, okay, well, but I think to dismiss, but to dismiss him, 
as well, an early state phenomenon, look, and now it all goes Sanders away. I, I'm, I'm feeling the burn. I'm feeling the burn, okay? but I'll tell you who's it, probably feeling the burn, uh, uh, Louise Root and Ben Root. That's correct. You know, the, yeah. your, and, the generation and of your children and Carson my children, Smith, and Carson right. Smith, the generation of your children and my right. children yeah, absolutely. are feeling yeah. the burn. And that's more problematic. When he, What did he win? 90% of the young people in Iowa? I've 85%, heard everything 80, 85, 90. Some you know, crazy amount. Pull a number look, out of your ear. There, there is something going on here that it's hard to... Well, he's, he's got an advantage that the Republicans don't have. He's running against somebody everybody knows and who is a baggage carrier. I mean, Hillary Clinton right. has more, a bunch of negative More baggage than Samsonite, right? Well, there's I a agree. bunch of reasons. Yeah. That people have a bunch of reasons, legit or not legit, to vote against her in a way that they don't against the Republican candidates. And Bernie is, mm-hmm. I'm not right. that. And, and, and I think there's a significant amount of the vote there. With, with, the, except, being, with the exception of this, she is the most qualified person running. If you just look at traditional resume experience, and this is a year in which resume experience is being discarded as a motivation. Except it's not the same thing in the Democratic primaries and the Republican primary. Yes, it's true. I mean, in the Republican primary, everything you just said totally applies to the Republican primary. Like experience is bad, um, establishment bad. Um, That's not necessarily the case in the Democratic primary. I mean, you wait till this rolls into Texas. Let's see how Bernie Sanders does in the Valley. Let's see how he does in San Antonio. I'm going to I'm going to predict to you that Hillary Clinton walks away in Texas. She she may very well. He'll win Travis County. Bernie's going to do great in Travis County. March first primaries may be great for Hillary. They may be great for Hillary Clinton, but before she gets to the SEC primary. She has to get through Nevada, which has a very heavy labor turnout that is favorable to Sanders. Uh, He is working harder on his South Carolina ground game and on his endorsements in South Carolina. I understand that South Carolina is supposed to be her firewall, and it may be, but I think he's doing a lot better than we think he is outside of those early states. Well, if it's anything other than a firewall and for her. And the momentum is with him, not her. If it's anything other than a firewall for her, then it's going to be a real chink in the armor. How do you think she does in Dallas and Houston? I agree with you on the Valley and San Antonio. How do you think no, Dallas I'm, and Houston do? I think she's going to win big in Texas. Big, big, big. I, I mean, I, you know, again, who knows? I mean, I, I, I never— well, I've been wrong seven I'm, times well, this exactly. I'm never, I'm never confident about my political predictions. I'm not confident, super confident about this one. I just feel like my sense is that um, because, uh, you know, being who we are in the media, we look at these phenomena. I'm like, oh, my God, look at this happen. It's like, yeah, but Trump— is actually up in the national polls. Trump is up in South Carolina. Trump has is last time we looked was tied in Texas with with Cruz. Uh, with Cruz. Yeah, I was that, we don't have those dynamics on the Democrat. I was side. prepared to dismiss Trump and I was prepared to dismiss Sanders and I'm no longer prepared to dismiss either. I actually believe that the the, the likeliest scenario here is that the nominees of the party Republican party will be Cruz or Trump. Uh, and obviously Sanders or Clinton is going to be the, will be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And I think that one of those four will be the next president. And if you stand back from that for a second, putting Secretary Clinton to the side, the idea that we're talking plausibly about the possibility of Trump, Sanders, or quite frankly, Ted Cruz as being the president of the United States in a year is kind of amazing. You know, Cruz is, is not... Uh, Trump by any means, but there was a conventional wisdom not long ago that there was no way Cruz could be president, no way Cruz could be elected. It may still be impossible for Cruz to be the nominee or for Cruz to be less impossible for him to be the nominee than it may be for him to be elected. But you know what? They have to run against somebody. 
and Sanders presents problems in the fall for the Democrats as the nominee, and Clinton presents There's problems in the fall. There's not a candidate left without a weakness. Oh, my God. Of course. Mm-hmm. Of but that's course, always but, the but case. I, I, think if, I think if you have Cruz as the nominee, I, I think Bob Dole had a good point in that, you know, we could lose the Senate. All right, Jay. House, All right, Jay. Speed, game show speed round. <laughs> Trump versus Clinton. Who wins? If, if I mean, look. No, no, no come on now. Speed round, speed round. We're going to sit around. You know, Seriously. I mean, Trump versus Clinton. Who wins? I would give Clinton the advantage. Trump versus that. Sanders. Who wins? I would say a toss up. Trump versus uh, Cruz versus Sanders. Who wins? Uh, toss up. Same thing. Cruz versus Clinton. Who wins? Clinton. We already said that. Clinton. You're, you think in both cases? Yeah. Against Cruz or Trump? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Do you guys agree? You agree with it, Terry? I don't know. Um, I tell you what, it's been really interesting to watch Hillary, um, you know, the divide between women voters on this one, between younger and older voters. And I tend to agree with you. My wife and my daughter. (laughs) Well, I tend to agree. I see both sides, but I really see younger voter sides, uh, younger women voter side on this. You're not with Madeleine Albright, who said there's a special place in hell for women who don't support women? No. I, I don't understand why the older generation, my generation Uh-oh. and older, no, think all young women have to be in lockstep on this issue. You know, I just, I don't agree with that at all. And it's really, I mean, it's very upsetting. Well, to they're, taking, they're trying to take a, an electorate for granted. We yes. were talking before we started taping about, um, Evan, you were going off on this. On well, taking- I was saying that I'm sympathetic to the position based on election results over the last couple of years. The Democrats who assume if a district is largely or majority um, non-Anglo, that they can just waltz into office. That's been disproven repeatedly. Yes. Right. We're no longer at a moment when the Democratic Party has a lock on the non-Anglo vote to the extent that those elections can be taken for granted. Now, James Aldretti, the media advisor to President Obama at one point or candidate Obama, and now he's doing work for Hillary Clinton, as well as Trey Martinez Fisher and others, will argue that there is not a correlation between race and ethnicity on the one hand and voter turnout, that it's more about age and education and poverty level. Peace on all that. I get that. It's not necessarily about race and ethnicity. But if you simply look at the areas of the state where the minority population is near majority or majority, the idea that the Democrats think that they can simply take those voters for granted, I think, has been disproven over time. You can't assume that anymore. Well, I mean, Republicans have done to Democrats what Democrats need to do to Republicans to win, which is you, you don't, you're not going to win the Hispanic vote necessarily, but you're going to do well enough. The Hispanic vote is, is a lot more up for grabs than, say, for example, the black vote. I mean, um, that's probably right. That's yeah, right. yeah. So, I mean, you know, Republicans, right. as long as they really make an effort right. like like Greg Abbott did, I mean, whether whether you think that effort was disingenuous or not, he still he got definitely, 40, he, he still he got did, 44% he definitely made an effort and it totally and, paid off. And for to him. Terry's point, Bernie Sanders last night in New Hampshire off. won the majority of women voters. Yes. And so the idea that somehow because you're a woman candidate that you have a lock on the majority of women voters, I actually think that Wendy Davis uh, did did Wendy Davis lose women? I don't remember that. I, I know she. Maybe I, know, she I, I, I seem I know, to think I know that the, maybe the she. The big rap on the on did. the Davis campaign and on Democratic campaigns that preceded it was much. that they um, paid no attention to Anglo's and and they ceded right. the Anglo vote. 
you've got to win, what is it, Jay, 45% of the Anglo vote as a Democrat to even contend. Exactly. And that has been, the you know, one of the main reasons why the, right. uh, you know, so I mean, I, that the Democrats keep losing is they keep losing a larger and larger. I, right. Mitt, go back and look at what Mitt Romney did in Texas. It's like 80 percent of the white vote. I, I will say this. I, 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 mean, I, I sat back last night watching uh, Trump from start to finish. I, I, I had seen pieces of Trump's speeches and pieces of Trump's. Um, the opening well, line. Wow. Wow. Well, wow, the, wow. like I watched a little bit of Trump <laughs> in Iowa and I watched, it was. It was I watched parts, of, oh, I watched I parts of Trump on the stump before. I hadn't really seen Trump, the full Trump, end to end. The full Trump. First of all, he looked like a, a, a big tangerine or a cantaloupe. He'd, like, He's, he'd be the first orange president. The yeah. idea that somehow John like, Boehner... No, orange is the new black with Trump. I mean, I mean, this is you got to be Did kidding he get me. Ted Kennedy's liver. Or he looks, something? he I mean. looks really bloated and orange. Uh, just that was one observation that surprised me. But then the other thing was, it's like a word salad. This is no, there was no coherence to this speech at all, and it was it all, was and all they loved about it. Him, and it was all about him, it, and it, they loved it. They loved it, and they loved gobble, it. Gobble 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 well, gobble. You know the biggest applause line the other day was the p word thing when he said that. I mean, oh my god, the, 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 it was sustained you won't applause say it on the podcast. Is the I, p I, word I'm, podcast? I'm a Liberty Texas boy. We don't really. He said pussy. I think you're a p word for not <laughs> well, saying it. Called Ted Cruz. Somebody in the audience called Ted Cruz a pussy, and Donald Trump said, "I don't agree with that. Repeat it." He did the speech version yeah. of retweeting it. Right, right. He called it a. Re he said, "There's nothing to that. It was just a retweet." Basically, he did say that. You know what? The Republic is the Republican Party really going to nominate this guy? I, I tell you, the biggest. You know, everybody kind had of, like it's lists. Kind of every, everybody had lists of winners and losers last night. The, there's one loser that did not show up, and the loser is the RNC. Because they really wanted to avoid something like this. This right. is a nightmare. I mean, Rance Priebus has to got to be just waking up in cold sweats <laughs> every night. So. Let's let's send that guy some Ambien because I know he ain't getting any sleep. Right. They need some more pharmaceuticals over there. Um, so you started a border project. Um, I did. This, we and, did. And I guess Jay. It's sort of the. This is the. This is the. Where's Jay Root been all this time? Uh, he stuck his head up with the border project. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so so we we've rolled out part one of um, of our massive border project. Um, border, we call it BSP here inside the uh, Tribune Border Security Project. Um, and our official title is bordering on insecurity. Bordering on bordering on insecurity, right? And um, so we <clears throat> have have now rolled out basically part, or we we've rolled out most of part one, or nah, I guess. What we're seventy five percent of part we've still one. Got some stuff coming. We've still got some stuff coming. Yeah, I mean, this is actually a different way of rolling things out, which I really like. This it, it, I it's do too. Particularly a guy who likes to write long read stories. I, I know Evan. You write long. I know it's like. Well, I actually thought that the Sarah Saldana piece that we, we don't run all of it, but published he writes a couple long. days ago was was a, was really a long read, and it was yeah. a really great read. And I thought the one yesterday was also kind of a longer read than what you'd be used to, but I, I liked it. I didn't think it was too long for the form. So, yeah. if you were talking about this thing in a code, what's the elevator pitch on this? What's the the project about? Um, the project is about what everyone is talking about in politics, and that is border security and, and, and immigration. I mean, 
Um, it's like drinking from a fire hose because there's so much information, so many acronyms, and, and you have to realize there, there are other countries involved. We don't talk about that much. I think that's one of the things that's missing. That's one of the things that we're going to talk about in this project. I mean, what's going on in these countries that uh, there's so much despair that they're, that they're you know, I, I talk about the despair over there. That's going to be part three. Uh, we're going to talk about corruption because, you know, you can build all the walls you want, but if people can pay to go under it, around it, or through it, what good is it? Um, I also think, you know, because it's a uh, 2016, if it's not, you know, it, it's obviously in the top three of issues, immigration, but um, if not the top two. And I think for most most people, I think I was like most people when I came to this project, is that you hear the word immigration and it's a lot of, yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't. Big fuzzy mess. It's a big fuzzy ball of string in my head. And I think it's been really interesting. It's been something for, you know, it's not my wheelhouse um, as an issue. And it's been fascinating, I, I've got to say. And I think one of the things we'll be examining all through this is how much pressure the feds put on the state and responsibility um, the feds put on the state to do their job. And I think, I mean, that's something Morgan and I are working on, and, and we'll have that in about a week. The intellectual framework here really is that both sides politicize this issue as both sides politicize every issue. And in a presidential campaign season that began really in uh, in earnest with Donald Trump descending the escalator and talking about rapists right. from Mexico and murderers, um, we know that there is no more uh, important or more controversial or more present issue than this one. I mean, where is the fault line between Cruz and Rubio immigration? What has Donald Trump put in front of everybody and claimed credit for making into an enormous issue? It was already an issue, but that he claims credit for making into an enormous issue, this. Um, the important thing to understand here is that both sides own the politicization of this issue. Mm -hmm. And we're not gonna take either side as the right side here. We're saying let's scrape off all of the political rhetoric and let's really send people down to the border, south of the border, along the border, and really report what's going on. This is an attempt to separate the rhetoric from the reality. And, and, it's gonna, and frankly, it's gonna make both sides mad because right. we're going to uncover things that run counter to both the narrative of the left and the narrative of the right. But I think we're also bringing it Absolutely. back to what the, you know, what the feds and the, and this, uh, the county sheriffs call the interior. Um, I think there's not a lot of um, concentration on the pressures on the interior. Our interior. Our interior, right. the Texas interior, the, the U.S. interior, that that's what they refer to once uh, undocumented immigrants make it past the border. And it, yeah, I, think that's, I think that's a brilliant point. This is not only of interest to people along the border because no. the impact of right. this is felt everywhere. everywhere in the state of Texas. Right. And as the state with the most contiguous miles uh, uh, with Mexico, this issue is a real and everyday issue for us in a way that it is not for other states. And I think we've already learned a lot of things. Um, I think that we've learned that we're putting a lot on law enforcement. We are expecting law enforcement to decide the very sensitive and dicey issue of who gets to stay and who has to go. And it's too much to ask of law enforcement. This is crying out for, some, uh, for a political solution. Um, so, you know, the, the two sides need to get into a room and figure out, you know, some way of getting control so we can know who is in our country. And we don't really know that right now. And, and that's, a, that's a, something that Congress ultimately really needs to decide. 
But, you know, another a lot of counterintuitive things have happened. Like, you know, I, I sort of if I knew I forgot that um, after the after Rodney Johnson, a Houston police officer, was was murdered in 2006 by an undocumented immigrant, it was revealed that the Texas Department of Public Safety, that the, the uh, Department police, of Public Safety, right. yeah, the state police were not keeping up with uh, sex offenders. That basically, if they got deported, they took them off the public registry of sex offenders. And guess what? He came right back. So you're on and the registry, boom. you leave the state, you're off the registry, and, and you, you come, come back, back in, and you're not on the registry anymore. Wow. So that's the state of Texas that did that. that. Now, you know, it was kind of forgotten about, and they fixed it pr- pretty quickly once this came out. Right. But, you know, it's not this sort of binary thing of, oh, it's only about sanctuary cities. Well, you know, we don't really have if you talk about sanctuary cities as policies that come into place once someone is in jail we really don't have any in texas we dallas is listed by ice as being uh, as having sanctuary ICE. ice immigration and customs enforcement but you know because of what uh, the sheriff there talked about but they, they don't really they had two or three declined detainers you know, meaning that they refuse to hand over somebody like three times, but then they're disputing that, and it could be a paperwork error. Austin, on the other hand, will probably be a sanctuary city come 2017. Hmm. I think that it's very, very likely that Austin will adopt a San Francisco-like posture come 2017, because all four of the Democratic candidates for sheriff, and I think the, the next sheriff will be a Democrat in Travis County, want to get ICE want to quit cooperating with ICE. And so, you know, we've discovered some of these things in the process of this because there's so much uh, rhetoric around this. There's so much, you know, people talking past each other that when you really lean into it and and, and get to the bottom of it, you you know, you start to get some real answers. And I think that's what we're coming up with. I'm really proud of it. And I think that the biggest thing takeaway for me has been the fact that We've got $800 million going down, state money going down to the border um, to make it secure. But none of that is going to better data keeping or knowing. Amen. Amen. And the the height of secrecy um, having to do with the immigration system is just unbelievable. At the state level. At the state and and federal federal level. level. It's, you know, the feds told us, uh, we, we tried to find out, okay, is there anybody on death row who's undocumented? Well, we, we it took us a <laughs> while. It's like an easy question. Right. Well, there's, there are 12. Easy. There are 12. Okay. So let's look at the immigration. Can we have the immigration histories? You can pick three. That's what they told pick us. Three. Pick, pick, pick three. Pick three. You're not allowed to have Why? them. You can't have them all. What's the basis for that? Well, because, they, exactly, right? And so then, then you, like, disentangle that. And, and, and basically what the deal is is that... The federal government, and again, this was under George W. Bush. In 2007, the Department of Homeland Security decreed that the Privacy Act, which only applies to citizens and lawful permanent residents, is now going to be applied at the agency level to undocumented immigrants, including those with horrible, violent histories like the ones on death row. So we, so then they said you have to submit an open records request, an FOI, Freedom of Information Act request, for the other nine. So we submitted, Alexa Yura submitted an open records request to the federal government 
for the other nine, and they sent us back a letter and said, um, you have to get permission from the people that are on death row before we'll release this to you. These are people who don't have any privacy anymore. We know everything about them. Their crimes, their dates of birth, you know, their privacy's gone. They're in prison. They're going to be executed. (laughs) It's even more basic than that. When just approaching uh, ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to talk about immigration, they're in an image change right now. They don't want to talk about immigration. They've told me that flat out. Uh, If you want to talk about immigration, we're not interested. I'm sorry. It's in your name. It's your mission. But they want to talk about how they're a big investigative force. They're solving human trafficking and art thievery and all kinds of other. Which they They, are. They they are. And and credit to them. But I'm sorry. You've got to talk about your primary mission here. Right. Well, it shows how sensitive it is, really. And again, we, we're asking too much of ICE in some ways because they're part of law enforcement in the same way that we're asking too much of a local sheriff, we're asking too much of a police officer to do this. There needs to be a political solution, but as Sarah Saldana said, we're so busy pointing fingers at each other that we can't sit down in the same exactly. room and figure this out. I, I'm curious if you see anything, and you know, we won't belabor this, but I, I'm curious if you see anything in the election cycle that says once the elections are done, we'll have the political means to work on this. I mean, is this, are we moving forward or backwards or not moving at all? You have a a presidential election in which, at least in one party, this is an enormously hot issue. You have to understand that if either Trump or Cruz, given the positions they've Mm -hmm. taken on this question, are elected, that we're going to move immediately to a pose of hard line on immigration with a Republican Congress that will probably line up smartly and salute behind whoever the new president is. And if you have a Democratic president, either Clinton or Sanders, although there hasn't been nearly as much focus on this issue in the Democratic primary, you're going to have a Democratic Mm -hmm. president with a Republican Congress without a veto-proof majority. It's going to be gridlock city again. I don't know how this issue moves forward. Do you see any way politically? Not really. I I mean, I I, I do. That's why I think that it's, you know, vital that we – that we impose the same accountability standards on this situation that we do on everything else that we look at, that we go straight down the middle, that we look at it because I, I want, I'm, I hope that we can be a place and play a, a small part in having like actual verifiable information that you can look at and, and, and come up to your own judgment because that's also really missing in this. You, you sort of have kind of a partisan uh, responses in the media that don't really get checked or yep. that are just kind of out there. So at and least so, you'll have a set of facts you can work from and figure right. out who's telling the telling the truth and who's full of beans. The other thing is, is that even if Republicans have a majority, would they pass something like, you know, would they really go after employers who employ undocumented immigrants? That's one of the things that we're also going to be looking at is the fact that, look, Republicans control the, the U.S. House of Representatives right now. They have one of the largest majorities in, in modern history, and they have not put Lamar Smith's E-Verify bill on the floor. Well, you think, tell me I, why I th- they I haven't done the, that. I think the lack of popularity of E-Verify in the business community, the right. Chamber of Commerce types here in Texas. Texas is probably emblematic of the problem at the national level. This issue in general and the issue of employee verification specifically is one on which the Chamber of Commerce wing of the Republican Party and the grassroots wing of the Republican Party do not see eye to eye. Except that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce actually did um, uh, endorse Lamar Smith's mandatory E-Verify. If there was legitimately agreement on this issue in Congress among the two halves of the Republican Party, there'd be a law. Somebody is... It's mm-hmm. the, 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 the all-powerful minority Democrats in the, not minority race and ethnic 
minority, but voting minority, minority voting minority, minority, Democrats in the U.S. House are not powerful enough to keep a uh, united Republican Party absolutely. with such a significant majority from passing this right. if the Republican Party wanted They to. don't want it. And by no, the way, it's not about that the House says, well, the Senate won't pass it, so we're not going to bother to. What the House is all about these days is passing stuff right. that the Senate won't pass Except so that they can turn around and point fingers. Magically, this one doesn't, right. isn't on there. So, so very, very quickly, what's yeah. coming up on the bordering on insecurity project? Does this just roll through the year? Does this roll well, through we, the month? Okay, so tomorrow, well, tomorrow, I got, are, we, are we not supposed to talk about tomorrow? Oh, talk about tomorrow. tomorrow. There's t- 10 people listen to this so, podcast. Okay. So, this is Wednesday morning. Yeah. Um, coming Thursday. No, coming Thursday. Yeah, right. coming Thursday, we're going to have the Quintero story. Uh, we interviewed uh, a guy who— Say who, say who this is. Um, this is the guy that killed Rodney Johnson in 2006, and we interviewed him in Wichita Falls behind bars, um, and it was very illuminating. Um, so we're going to have that story, the story of, of what happened and that and how that ended up becoming like a, a huge case uh, that everybody was talking about. Um, and then we have a great story about how coming up you're, soon next week, I think, is, is the story about how awful really our records on this. We don't, we don't know who's in our jails. And, um, and also incredible. how we're leaning so much on jails. And right. um, it's just been an amazing journey coming through that, yeah. uh, how little we know. But I also want people to sign up for the alerts. I hope they'll sign up for the alerts of boarding on, bordering on insecurity so alerts. If, so if you go to our website, you click right. on Jay's story from yesterday, in there are very simple instructions on how you can right, sign up right to be the notified the every time a new story right. is published. Click here to click there. Right, Great. Terry, would you update us on the curious case of Donna Dukes of Austin, Texas? Yes. Um, we became aware last week that the state auditor's office is looking into um, questions about what the staff should be doing, whether they should be working on legislative work or working on a pet nonprofit project of hers, which is the African American Community Heritage Festival. Dukes is a Democrat who's in the Texas House of Representatives. Correct. And she is also one of the founders of the Heritage Festival that's gone on for 17 years. And uh, we've gotten email and information that staff was used, it appears at this point in time, in a considerable way to help organize, produce um, that festival. State staff for non-state business. Correct. Um, well, this is an old issue, not the Duke's issue, no. but the, the question of whether people who are on the state payroll working in legislative offices or state agencies or what have you can then turn around and work on non-state business, whether it's political business or personal business. Well, that, this well, is an old issue, right? Well, but the line seems to be, I mean, sort of, you know, wherever the lawyers draw it, but the, the line operationally has always been they can't be made to do that and they can't do it on state time. Right, that's the question. But, you know, your staffers can go work on your project and do all of that stuff if they want to. They can go wash your car if they want to. Right. It's they can't a, be made to do it on state time. Right. You can't say, I, I want you to pick up my kid every day and that's part of your job. You can't do that. You can say... If you have time. And and that's being alleged in part of Representative Dukes. Right. That that was made part of um, one of the staffer's duties. Is it possible that they were being asked to do it not on state time? uh, We don't see any evidence so far of that. Do the staffers who were asked to do it have a point of view about whether they were being asked to do it on state time? Of course they do. And their point of view is, I was being asked to do it on state time. Correct. Right. Um, Representative Dukes has talked to us. 
She has. She has. And she's been pretty open and about she's this. she's talked to Facebook. She has. Um, she says that what she's doing is lawful and not improper. And nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. So the state auditor is doing a report for the House. I guess the House kicks these things to them kind of as a matter of course. They did it with a Tim Kleinschmidt case right. a while back that Jay wrote about. Um, so we just wait for the auditor and see where it goes from here. We wait for that or if there any other investigative group might come forward. I don't know if this will um, go to a DA or whether... The, Can I ask about that? So with the gutting of the Public Integrity Unit in the Travis County DA's office last session, to whom would an investigation of the propriety of this go? Travis Should County state DA. Auditor Travis County DA. Still. Well, it's well because it's, she's from Travis County. So d- despite the fact that the Public Integrity Unit is gone, her jurisdiction mm-hmm. is Travis County. Public right. Integrity Unit is not gone. The Public Integrity Unit stuff funded by the state is gone. Well, that's what right. I mean. Right. But, so, so, but because of that change, it would kick to the home county of the public Correct. official. Right. In this case, happens to be Travis County. But wouldn't the Rangers, though, have a – because the, the, the initial investigation on public integrity stuff now right. goes to but, – And but, I checked with them yesterday, and they are – not there is not no investigation. Well, right. the other thing is, is though, is that my recollection from last session was there were some things that are considered public integrity, like bribery and other, you know, alleged offenses. I don't know if if this one would be a public integrity or would be just straight up, you know, maybe right the, ish, a question of whether or not staff was improperly used. I don't know if that would be a public integrity uh, right there's, offense or not. There's actually a law that you can't use I mean, it's a misuse of staff issue can i ask you can i ask a question just to, to not to get too down in the weeds on this but i am curious so the back when k bailey hutchison was state treasurer and there was an allegation right. of k bailey hutchison using staff for was it politi- writing thank you notes for political stuff. purposes political right. purposes is there a distinction made in the law between uh, uh public officials using state employees for political purposes and public officials using state employees for personal business. No, so they're equally bad or equally it's not, not bad. It's not a. It's, it's not a state. It's not a state function. You're using state resources okay, so for non-state functions. Okay, so in the case of Kay Bailey Hutchison, it, it you know Ronnie Earl went medieval on her behind on this, and it ultimately <laughs> well, up, to, up, up to a, up to a point, point yeah. and ultimately nothing nothing transpired out of this. Famously, my question is: Is there potentially the, the a similar scenario in a case like this? Where it could conceivably get to where the K got conceivably, got to. yeah. But yeah. now you're writing fiction. You don't know yet. Well, but well I'm just asking. No, but, but I'm trying to understand what conceivably the the end game of a case, not specifically related to Representative Dukes, but generally the the misuse, if it's perceived to be or found to be, the misuse of state employees for for non-state business could ultimately breadcrumb out to something along the lines of that. There's, there's a long history of botched public integrity right. investigations. Right. Let me ask a question, Jay. You know that there's a DA's office, uh, uh, the DA uh, uh, election in Travis County that we're currently in the middle of. Um, could the uncertainty of who's going to be the DA and, and, and sort of what the deal is in the DA's office in any way affect yeah, well, we I mean, well, we, to... we have a year. We have a year for of Rosemary Lindbergh left. So if if you know she might say, you know, I'm just going to wait until the new guy. I'll let I'll this pick your DA. <laughs> yeah, watch, watch through the endorsements here. Yeah. Uh, the sixth annual Trip Fest is coming up. Hard to believe we're doing it a sixth time. Um, 
Six years. How about the, that? You know, the happiest day of the year for me, at least, is the, the, day, the, Sunday after, when it the ends, day after yeah. it's over. When so the Longhorn Band comes time out. From the it's going to be on September 23rd, 24th, and 25th. Uh, the sign-up date for tickets is 420. 4-20. Smith picked that. Yes. It's a favorite date of his. It is. Uh, you can get more information um, at texastribune.org slash festival. Um, if you have questions or comments about the TribCast, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. If you get us through iTunes, please review us there. It bumps our numbers, and we like that. Uh, you can also sign up for TribCast alerts at texastribune.org slash TribCast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. On behalf of Evan, Terry, Jay, and our producer, Todd, this is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Everybody yeah, has no, their own go cue. For it. Oh, no, you go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no,